On this show, we will talk about space diseases. All diseases are constantly coming from outer space. Fake dinosaurs. He said that a fossil in the London Museum of Natural History uh, that's showing the evolution between uh, dinosaurs and birds was a, was a fake. A dying universe. Everything dies out in the universe and everything becomes... Warning. True stories and science is for mature audiences only. Open minds are advised. Broadcasting from the West Coast, here's Evan Weiss. Joining me today is Paul Halpern. He's a professor of physics at the University of Sciences. He is a prolific science writer. His latest book is Flashes of Creation. Paul Halpern, welcome to the show, and how are you? Hi, thanks for having me on. I'm doing fine. Thank you. Um, what inspired you to write the, uh, the Flashes of Creation? Well, as o I've always been very interested in the life and the works of uh, George Gamow and Fred Hoyle. Both of them are fascinating characters. Both of them were popularizers. They wrote some amazing science books and science fiction, and they also made pivotal contributions to the study of the universe. Okay, and, and I know there there was a big debate between uh, both of them. I think one of them was uh, the debate between the Big Bang theory and the steady state theory. Can you explain a little bit more about that? Yeah, that's correct. Well, even though Fred Hoyle was an advocate of the steady state theory, he was the one who coined the term Big Bang, and he meant that as kind of an insult. He used it disparagingly when he was on BBC Radio in 1949 because Fred Hoyle thought it was inherently ridiculous, the idea that all matter and energy will be created at one point in the past billions of years ago. He just thought that there should be a better explanation. So steady state imagines that matter and energy is created very, very slowly in tiny drops over the eons, and that's something that could be measured. The Big Bang Theory, on the other hand, imagines that everything was created in the distant past. And the initial problem with the Big Bang Theory, which was advocated by George Gamow, was that it predicted that the universe was two billion years old or so, two or three billion years old, whereas uh, some of the stars, or many of the stars, are much older than that. Earth is older than that. So there were contradictions in the Big Bang Theory, which is why a number of people advocated for steady state. And um, so that is, um, that is why um, many people uh, were advocates of steady state in the 1950s. And why was one theory uh, adopted and, one, and the other discarded? Well, in 1964, two astronomers, Arno Penzias and Bob Wilson, were looking using a, a radio telescope in New Jersey for signs of signals from the Milky Way, indicating a halo from the Milky Way. And then they discovered that no matter which way they pointed their instrument, they detected this strange hiss. And they thought for, at first it was noise from New York City, and they ruled out the noise from New York. They ruled out uh, environmental sounds and then finally, they were interested in the idea, they considered the idea that perhaps pigeons were uh, dropping 
uh, the waste material on the telescope. So they cleaned up the telescope. They trapped the pigeons. They did everything they could, and the hiss remained. So they were perplexed, but then somebody they knew told them about a group at Princeton University headed by somebody named Bob Dickey who were investigating the possibility of signals from the early universe. So Penzias called Bob Dickey, and Bob Dickey immediately said, yes, it's probably something from the early universe. They went out to investigate, and sure enough, it was a signal from the early universe uh, kind of showing that the universe was once hot and dense. And uh, that is called the cosmic microwave background radiation. And that was the telltale sign that the universe once had a hot beginning. And that negated the idea of the steady state, which says that the universe is pretty much the same over time. And now, is that uh, the same thing as the noise on a television? Is that sort of the Big Bang's background radiation? Yes, for an old-style television uh, with an antenna, uh, if, you, uh, if there's nothing being broadcast, and I remember that from when I was a child, that television would stop broadcasting after a certain time, there would be a hiss, and part of that hiss is our signals from the early universe, amazingly. And how was it determined that that hiss was, in fact, background uh, noise for, uh, leftover from the Big Bang? Well, you can measure uh, the frequency spectrum of that hiss uh, carefully using a, a spectrometer. Uh, you can uh, then determine, based on that frequency spectrum, there's a, a physics theory called black body radiation that says if uh, radiation has a certain frequency distribution, you can calculate the temperature. And they calculated the temperature to be something like three degrees above absolute zero. And there were predictions by Gamow's team, uh, somebody named Ralph Alpher and Bob Herman, saying that the, if, if the universe was hot in the beginning, that radiation cooled off should be a few degrees above absolute zero. And in fact, the radiation from the Hiss was a few degrees above absolute zero. Another reason they thought it was from the early universe is because no matter which direction they pointed it, it seemed exactly the same. Now, today we know that there are subtle differences in the temperature of the radiation, reflecting the fact that the universe at the time that the radiation was emitted was starting to form the seeds of matter, and those seeds were slightly hotter than places where matter was not being formed. So there's a very, very slight difference, but measurable difference, in the temperature of that hiss throughout space that reflects the fact that the universe is not 100% uniform, but rather has some differences from place to place due to the fact that there's matter in some places and not matter in other places. So that shows that the hiss came from the Big Bang. Does the second law of thermodynamics contradict the uh, Big Bang theory? Well, the second law of thermodynamics says that uh, everything is tending towards greater and greater disorder. Um, so um, you need uh, a, a Big Bang that has a certain amount of order. If the, if the Big Bang was completely disordered, completely high entropy, as they say, entropy is a measure of disorder, 
then the universe couldn't really progress from there according to the second law of thermodynamics. So you need a certain amount of orderly energy at the beginning of the universe for life and uh, any activity to eventually happen. Interesting. Okay. And why is it still called the theory, in your opinion? Well, theory in, in physics uh, doesn't mean it's not proven. You can have proven theories. Uh, so uh, in mathematics, a theorem is something that's absolutely proven. For example, the Pythagorean theorem is something that is very well known. So uh, theory is not a disparaging term. It just means that it's something that, that can be proven. And it has been proven. What is singularity? So interestingly enough, around the time that the cosmic microwave background radiation was detected, uh, Roger, Roger Penrose came up with a proof that black holes eventually collapse into a singularity, which is a point of infinite density. So imagine a huge amount of matter, the matter of uh, let's say, uh, you know, 100 times the mass of the sun or at least 20 times the mass of the sun, something like that, crammed into a point that is infinitesimally small. Well, uh, that would have an infinitesimal, uh, so an infinite density, and that's what a singularity is. It's, it's hard to fathom. Well, Stephen Hawking took Roger Penrose's proof, flipped it in time, looked backward in time to the start of the Big Bang and proved that the Big Bang must start from a point of infinite density. And what was there before the Big Bang, Paul? Well, interestingly enough, uh, Bob Dickey, who was the one who proved that the, um, and, and his student, Jim Peebles, proved uh, that the uh, detection by Penzias and Wilson had something to do with a hot early universe. Bob Dickey didn't start out as a real believer in a singularity or in a single Big Bang. He believed in an oscillating universe, that something existed before the present universe that collapsed and formed the Big Bang. Well, there's a controversy about that because mainstream physicists believe that the Big Bang started in a singularity, so therefore there was nothing before it. But um, there are ideas in which um, the universe recycles itself. So there, there are several ideas, including one by Paul Steinhardt called the cyclic cosmology. And uh, Roger Penrose has an idea of conformal cyclic cosmology in which there are previous cycles of the universe. Well, uh, yeah. there's, well that's actually there's, my next question. Now. Well, what is conformal uh, cyclic cosmology? And can you dive into that a little, a little bit more? Well, it's mathematically uh, uh, rather rigorous, but it, it has an idea that there are certain mathematical transformations that can take something that is very large and transform that very large thing mathematically into something very small. So it's a, it's a mathematical mapping of something that is huge to something that is very small. And that can happen... Uh, if the universe is empty. So what Penrose imagines is that someday everything dies out in the universe and everything becomes either a uh, stellar relic 
or a black hole. And these black holes slowly emit radiation and lose their mass that way. And perhaps even the particles of the universe, such as the protons, are unstable over time. So Penrose is Im imagines what happens when the universe is, is absolutely empty or close to empty, and in which case it becomes something like a vacuum. And for a vacuum, you can define this transformation called a duality in which you take a large universe, transform it into a small universe. So suddenly the universe, instead of thinking it's large, thinks it's very, very small. And then it is empty. It, it is free of, somehow free of entropy just because of this, this transformation and starts all over again. So hmm. it's, it's, it's a little bit hard to imagine, but it's a mathematical uh, transformation that does this. Interesting. Um, now, do you think uh, the 20th century was the, a golden age of physics? And if so, why? Well, the 20th century was a golden age, partly because of the formulation by Einstein of general relativity and before that special relativity, the uh, theory of quantum mechanics, uh, nuclear physics came about in the 20th century. And finally, uh, modern cosmology emerged with Einstein's theory, with Lemaitre's idea that the universe started in, in what became known as the Big Bang, uh, with Hubble's discovery of the expanding universe, and then um, uh, Gamow's proposal that the Big Bang created all the material in the universe, which turned out to be partly right. The Big Bang created most of the helium in the universe, but as Hoyle showed with his colleagues, uh, stars in their dying phase, uh, as, as their cores contract and become very hot, create the other chemical elements. So that was an amazing discovery too. As I talk about in my book, Flashes of Creation, the combination of Hoyle's idea of uh, material being produced in stars and Gamow's idea that some of the material was produced during the Big Bang explains how all the chemical elements from hydrogen to uranium formed, all the natural chemical elements, which is a phenomenal discovery. So in my book, I show how they were mavericks, they were uh, incredibly creative, and came up with these discoveries which have revolutionized our understanding of the universe. Gamow wrote a series of books called the Mr. Tompkins series, Imagining a Bank Clerk, uh, stumbling into all these variations of the universe, like ones in which the speed of light is really very small, so the banker starts, the bank clerk starts to see relativistic effects. So this this wonderful series of books, and also something called One Two Three Infinity, which is a very influential science book. And Hoyle wrote a lot of science fiction, including The Black Cloud and A for Andromeda, which was a television series. So they got a lot of recognition for that, and they won both won something called the Kalinga Prize for science popularization, okay. but neither of them won a Nobel Prize. They were each right. nominated for a Nobel Prize, and uh, there's some speculation uh, in Gamow's case that because he was seen as a popularizer, people weren't as familiar with his scientific contributions. And in fact, when the cosmic microwave background was discovered, 
Um, originally, a lot of the press went to Penzies Wilson and to uh, Dickey and Peebles. And Gamov uh, came out and said, hey, wait a minute. We were the ones who first predicted this stuff. So finally, Gamov, Alfred and Herman got some recognition for that. Um, so, and Gamov died fairly young, so he might have won a Nobel Prize if he had lived long enough. And Hoyle was, in his later years, unfortunately, because of some of his later theories, considered a kind of fringe scientist. So well, even what though- what, uh, what theories were those? Well, in his later years, he came up with this idea called panspermia. Oh, yeah. Just that I've heard that all, <laughs> that all life came from outer, uh, from outer space. And that wasn't so bad in a way, but then he started to say, well, all diseases are constantly coming from outer space. And, you know, for example, he said that Legionnaire's disease, AIDS, and all these diseases which were, which were uh, emerging uh, in the late 20th century, he said, oh, that comes from space. And people were in some ways offended by that. He said that a fossil in the London Museum of Natural History uh, that's showing the evolution between uh, dinosaurs and birds was a was a fake without really supplying evidence for that. And that <laughs> made people very upset. So that was before um, uh, his colleague, Willie Fowler, won the Nobel Prize for the theory of the chemical elements being created in stars. And that was originally Hoyle's idea. So people were a bit outraged that Hoyle didn't share the Nobel Prize with Willie Fowler. Willie Fowler helped prove the idea, but Hoyle was the one who originally came up with the idea. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, panspermia doesn't seem so far-fetched today, especially, especially with the idea of maybe finding microbes on asteroids or other planets. But uh, the other ones do seem a little far-fetched still. George Gamow. As I mentioned, he wrote all these popular science books. He came up with pivotal ideas in nuclear physics, like the describing alpha decay. He, uh, in addition to his cosmological ideas, he contributed to modern genetics by coming up with, through a deck of cards, the idea that sh of shuffling cards, that um, that shuffling uh, the uh, ge genetic material um, in uh, RNA could lead to a description of how amino acids were formed. Hmm. So uh, he, he suggested that to James Watson and others. So he was remarkably diverse and uh, he was a cartoonist. He drew his own cartoons for his books. And then Hoyle wrote operas uh, with Leo Smith. He, uh, he was very interested in music. He wrote the science fiction. He was a mountain mountain climber. Oh wow! Uh, so he he climbed uh, every major mountain in Scotland before he died. Uh, so these were Renaissance Re people. Yeah, they definitely were Renaissance people. Yeah, and uh, they had remarkable backgrounds. Gamov was born in Odessa, which was part of the Russian Empire, and when. Um, after the Russian Revolution, uh, he went to St. Petersburg and he worked there. But then he was frustrated because as, uh, as the Soviet Union developed, uh, travel was very restricted. And he was restricted to go from going to conferences 
in, in Western Europe. So finally, he and his young wife, uh, Roe, decided to uh, try to escape using a rubber kayak in the Black Sea. And they were going to sail to Turkey and claim that they were Danish and get a Danish passport and go to Copenhagen where they could work with Niels Bohr. But unfortunately, there was stormy weather, so they were blown back to the shore. But then remarkably, Niels Bohr uh, managed to get them to be, or at least Gamov, George Gamov, to be appointed as the uh, Russian representative or Soviet representative to the Salvay Conference of 1933. And he was able to find a visa. And he talked talked his way into get uh, getting uh, his wife a visa. So they both went to the 1933 Salvay Conference and escaped from the Soviet Union that way, which is an incredible story. And um, Hoyle, in his later years, one of the reasons why he uh, perhaps became known as a bit of a fringe scientist is because he, in, 19, in the ni early 1970s, he had an institute of astronomy in Cambridge, and he was very successful there and very respected there. And he, uh, that's around the time that he got a knighthood by Queen Elizabeth, who became Sir Fred. And then uh, the Institute was merged into something else, and he was very upset about it. So he abruptly left Cambridge and went to a mountain peak in the Lake District, which is a remote district of England, with his wife. And that was not a very good place to do science because he was suddenly very remote. And that's when he began to just come up with ideas on his own and work on those rather than uh, exploring what the mainstream scientific community was doing. And his daughter told me, uh, Hoyle's daughter, Liz Butler, said that it's a shame because he might have wasted uh, many good years of science that way by being on a mountaintop in the middle of nowhere. But doesn't sometimes uh, solitude really uh, give you really good insights on, on discoveries? I know there's a lot of uh, cases where in science that's happened. Well, um, that that's true that he, he had a lot of time for his thoughts, which may maybe benefited his his science fiction and his speculation. But um, it wasn't very good for, for example, his work on uh, the origin of life, because there was only he really, really had one collaborator on, collaborator on that and couldn't really collaborate with other people very easily. Hmm. Okay. Uh, what else about the book you want? Do you want uh, our listeners to know? Because it's a it's a very interesting book. I, I really really enjoyed reading it. Well, thank you very much. Well, I think readers should know that Flashes of Creation is a non technical book. I talk about the full history of the Big Bang. It's been very well reviewed so far. Uh, reviews uh, today in the New York Times just came out in Science News, and, and it, there's been a lot of praise for the book. And one thing I like to do in my History of Science books is to really show the human side of the, of the people in, involved. I show uh, Gamov's strengths, and his flaws uh, and uh, problems that developed. He had a lot of health problems in his later years uh, because of his excess uh, drinking, unfortunately. Um, and uh, I show uh, a lot of humor in the book. 
uh, uh, Gamov loved to pull pranks. He loved puns uh, for his big paper on the Big Bang. He had a student named Ralph Alpher, and he decided to make a pun on the name Alpher, which is like the Greek letter Alpha, and Gamov, which is like the Greek letter Gamma, by adding the name Hans Beta to the paper <laughs> to make it Alpha, Beta, Gamma. So it's known right. as the Alpha, Beta, Gamma paper. And That's Beta cool. didn't, didn't even know that that would happen, and he didn't contribute to the paper, which upset <laughs> Alpha because Alpha was the main contributor right. to the paper. Right. But anyway, there's a lot of funny stories in the paper in the book, so uh, I think readers would really enjoy it. I think often we don't we don't get to see that side of of uh, scientists. Uh, we don't get to see the human side, and I think this book really highlights uh, those human elements of their lives. And how important are popularizers, in your opinion, uh, for science? Well, I think it's great for science to be well-known to the general public. And Gamov and Hoyle, as I show in my book, Flashes of Creation, were experts at making science palatable and understandable. And that's perhaps why the uh, battle between the Big Bang and the steady state was so well-known in the 1950s. I tracked down in my book a letter from a boy who um, was living in uh, coal country in Pennsylvania at the time and was going to a library and found out about the Big Bang versus Steady State battle and wrote a letter to Bob Dickey asking his opinion about it for a science fair project. And I found, I, I Googled the name of the boy because I found his letter in an archive and he's now a computer science professor and still remembered writing that letter and was astonished that I found his letter as as a boy in an archive and said he he had uh, needed that information for a project and unfortunately a biology project uh, won out so uh, he told me that the what happened in that story so but but anyway he was one of many children who were and and grown-ups who were um, interested in this this battle between the Big Bang and Steady State just because of these popularizers. Thank you, Paul Halper, for being on the show. Where can people find more information about Flashes of Creation? Flashesofcreation.com. And I have a Twitter page, which is at uh, P. Halpern, my fir the first initial, my first name, and then my last name, Halpern. Paul Halpern. Thank you for being on the show. Uh, my pleasure. It's uh, really uh, exciting to be on your show. Thank you very much. If you made it this far, you're truly a sage. And we want to thank you for listening to True Stories in Science. Like, follow, and subscribe to support this show.